from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. It is good to be together in worship again. Uh, there are friendship pads located on the outside portions of the pew. I'd encourage you to locate them. Uh, pass them back and forth down the aisles. Print your name legibly so that we can read it. If you're a member or regular visitor here, just give us your name. Let us know that you're here this morning. Uh, if you are with us for the first time, we'd love to receive some contact information so that we can reach out to you in a more personal way during this week. Uh, following worship this morning, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in my sermon, but following worship this morning, I'm inviting everyone to join me over in Fifield Hall for our Get Involved Fair, where we have leaders of various ministries uh, represented and opportunities. Some are new, uh, some are very familiar to us as a congregation, but would strongly encourage you to go over there uh, to Fifield Hall after worship this morning and to connect with some folks around some of the amazing ministry the Spirit is leading in us uh, in this season and in the season to come this fall. So please do your best to be a part of that. Uh, I walked by uh, the, the, the main foyer this morning and the mustard seed is open. And so the mustard seed is our bookstore. It's back open now uh, after being closed for the summer. And if you um, have an opportunity to go visit there, I'd strongly suggest uh, you do that. The store looks great and you'll be greeted by wonderful folks and a little bit of coffee if you would like. Uh, following worship this morning, we will also have a Stephen minister in the chapel who will be there to uh, greet anybody and meet anybody who would like to have personal prayer. So please take advantage of that ministry if you are looking for someone uh, to pray for a specific need that you have. Next Sunday, after this service, after our later service, we will be having a church picnic, a great time of fellowship and, and celebration as we close out the summer and get ready for the fall season. So please do your best to be a part of that next Sunday with great food and fun activities uh, following the 1045 worship service. We're three more weeks left in our, uh, in our summer schedule. We'll be transitioning to a new schedule in the fall, 8 o'clock in the chapel, 9 o'clock casual service in Fifield Hall, and not 1045, but 11 o'clock in here in the sanctuary. That begins again on the 11th of December. You can see by the white rose that our community has been affected by death, and we extend our condolences and our prayers to Mary Claire Alvine and her family upon the death of her 103-year-old grandmother, the matriarch of her family. There are five or six Claires named after this matriarch, and uh, we give thanks for these gifts that come to us that come wrapped up in flesh. So be in prayer for uh, Mary Claire's family as they continue to celebrate and give thanks for Claire's life. Well, friends, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And let us prepare our hearts now for the worship of God. Please turn with me in your pew Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, which can be found on page 27 in the New Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from, from, from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it? that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And then the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are, who are members of my family, and you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devils of, and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And, the, and these will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus, the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in the mid-2000s, a University of Chicago economist and a New York Times bestselling author teamed up to write a book which, which had a goal of delivering deep and profound economic theory to a broad lay audience, to, to, to compose a, a text that, that could be used by the general population to really understand what economics is all about. We have two college students from our congregation, Henry Hasbrook and, and Sam Orr. Henry's in this service. Sam was at the early service, who both spent uh, several weeks at the London School of Economics. I can guarantee this book was not part of their required reading. This is a book designed for people who, who aren't necessarily trying to dig deep, but do want to get a general sense and understanding of, of economic theory. And so these two authors, Steve Levitt and Stephen Dunbar, penned this book, some of you read it several years ago, called Freakonomics. And what they, what they distill down when it comes to economic theory and what it means, this is how they define it. They say economics is the study of incentives. Economics is the study of incentives, how people get what they want or what they need, especially when people want or need the same things, right? Here's an excerpt from the book. We all learn to respond to incentives, they write, negative and positive, from the outset of life. If you toddle over to the hot stove and touch it, you burn a finger. But if you bring home straight A's from school, you get a new bike. If you're spotted picking your nose in class, you're ridiculed. 
But if you make the basketball team, you move up the social ladder. If you break curfew, you get grounded. But if you ace your SATs, you get to go to a good college. If you flunk out of law school, you have to go to work at your father's insurance company. But if you perform so well that a rival company comes calling, you become a vice president and no longer have to work for your father. If you become so excited about your new vice president job that you drive home 80 miles per hour, you get pulled over by the police and fined $100. But if you hit your sales projections and collect a year-end bonus, you not only aren't worried about the $100 ticket, but can also afford to buy that Viking range you've always wanted on which your toddler can now burn her own finger. They would argue that the, that the world revolves around incentives. How we are motivated to do what we do. This morning, I would invite you to think with me about incentives as they apply to a very particular aspect of the Christian life, the aspect of service. The aspect of service. Just to be clear, I'm going to be hyper-focused on this question. Why do Christians serve? Why do Christians serve? In other words, I hope this morning that we might consider the motivation, the incentive at the heart, at the very core of our charitable action, of our life of service. Uh, Many families have have seen their, their children and grandchildren return to school over these past few weeks. As part of that back-to-school process, expectations have been communicated by teachers and administrators related to what is required to have a successful year. In some schools, part of those requirements relate to accumulating mandatory service hours if the student is to graduate or to move on to the next grade level. Now, there there continues to be a great uh, debate as to the efficacy of mandatory service as part of a school's curriculum. There certainly are stories of young people who discovered uh, their passion or their purpose in life because they first encountered a serving learning context that opened their heart and their mind up to do what it is they believed they were called to do. Without that experience, who knows if they if they would have pursued or become the people they have become. And so in that way, the positives of mandatory service, they they do stand on their own, don't they? They open the door sometimes for a young person to discover what it is they've been created to do. There can be, however, a more challenging side to this equation. In fact, some would argue that if the incentive to serve, if the incentive to serve is not born from a genuine altruism or an authentic desire to do good for the sake of the one being served, to do good for the sake of the one being served, then the student learns that service is actually a self-serving enterprise. It's a self-serving enterprise. I'm doing this because I need to graduate. Graduation is a strong incentive, therefore I'm going to fulfill these requirements of community service. The student's incentive is not concerned with the plight of the person or the community they are serving, but rather their incentive is fulfilling the requirements that positively or if left undone negatively affect their life. 
their life. This is anecdotal, but it, but it may provide some insight, maybe a different perspective on this challenge. I heard a story from, from a family I know. Uh, this happened recently where, where one of the, the son's friends uh, came with them on a little excursion to the High Museum of Art just right next door. These kids go to a school that requires mandatory service hours. And as they approach the entrance to the High, the, 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 the friend said to the mother, Mrs. Jones, does this visit count as community service hours? <laughs> right? Does the visit to the museum count as community service hours? Now, grace abounds for this young person, right? Because I think part of this has to do with the ways in which we form kids to understand service. And I want you to follow me here. Does making service hours mandatory form the child into thinking that anything they instinctively do not want to do, like visiting a museum, does it form them instinctively, those things that they instinctively don't want to do, does it form them in such a way that says, ah, this must be service? Right? I mean, here's the danger. Not only is service incentivized by personal interest, right? But the very definition of service becomes compromised based on one's own desires. Do I want to do this or not? If I don't want to do it, then obviously this is service. If I do, then this is fun. Incentivized service is not just a conversation for students looking to fulfill school requirements. It seems as if self-interest for service doesn't just impact the younger generations, but is a thread that runs through all of life. I visited a website this past week called Family Share. I've never been on it before. It's one of these, these personal improvement sites it's not short on advice as it concerns marriage or parenting or how to, to run your household. And, and there was an article uh, that gets at the heart of the incentive question as it relates to charitable giving from a few years ago, but it, but it came uh, as sort of a front page story on this website. The title of the piece was Six Reasons Why You Should Donate to Charity. Six Reasons Why You Should Donate to Charity. Now, pay, pay close attention to how this article, at least, incentivizes charitable giving. First, they say, you feel rich. And what they mean is, is that if you have something to give away, you should feel good that you have something to give away. You have, you have some sort of wealth. You feel rich. Two, you get to be part of something bigger than yourself. Three, you get to join a cause. Four, you set an example. Five, you feel grateful for what you have. And of course, six, you get a tax deduction. <laughs> Pardon me, but, but after I read this, I literally, I literally laughed out loud. Not because what was named isn't possible. Stay with me here. Not because what is named isn't possible when one participates in charitable giving. But I laugh because it is so self-centered. It's about you, how you feel when you give. 
It's about what you have. It's about your example. It's about your taxes. It's not about the other. It's not about the moral good. It's not about justice. It's about you and how you feel. I know I'm coming off strong here, but I would contend that self-centered incentives for service have no resonance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no integrity with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A moment of transparency. I have used phrases before like, when I serve, I get more out of it than I give. When I serve, I feel better about myself. Those statements are not untrue. They are true. But if I frame my approach to service as a Christian, if I frame it in such a way that demonstrates how I have a concern for my own gratification from this act, my own fulfillment rather than a concern for the plight of the least of these or about the systems that may have perpetuated their current situation as it is, then I believe I'm living outside of a gospel mandate. That I'm approaching it in all the wrong ways. Because when the incentive is my own personal satisfaction and my own self-interest, I may stop serving. Do you follow me? If it's my own self-satisfaction, my own interest, I may stop serving because I may determine that it's not in my best interest to love you. It's not in my best interest to show up when you need me. It's not in my best interest to, to take time and the patience to learn your story. I may, I may determine that it is in my best interest to do for you what you can do for yourself because I have some ego need to be recognized. It may be in my best interest to do something that you can do for yourself. You know, there's a phrase for that. Some folks in our community are reading a book about this. Bob Lupton, who's here in Atlanta, wrote this book called Toxic Charity. That's what he says toxic charity looks like. He says, as compassionate people, we've been evaluating our charity by the rewards we receive through service rather than the benefits received by the served. That'll preach. When we evaluate service based on what we get out of it instead of the one being served. Bob Lupton calls that toxic charity. The parable of the sheep and the goats frames our incentive to serve in totally different terms. Totally different terms. To be sure, it is a radical thought when measured against blogs and websites that make it all about you and me. For the friend of God and follower of Jesus Christ, this text clearly states that the incentive to serve the least of these is rooted in the truth. Then what we do, when we do, we serve Jesus himself. We actually serve Jesus himself. Service is not about us. It's not about us. It's not about what we get out of it or what benefits come to us because of it. And sure enough, I had somebody at the 830 service want to, want to talk about this. Sure enough, by God's grace, there is a, a fulfillment that can come. 
There there is something that can come to us, a a sense of of God's presence and God's deep grace, and, and we can appreciate that, and we can feel connected to that. But that's not what gets us in the room. That's not what incentivizes us to serve. That's a byproduct of pursuing Jesus Christ in disguise. For every time we give food to the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, every time we befriend the stranger, every time we clothe the naked, care for the sick, and visit those in prison, we are doing it to Jesus himself. I love the language. It doesn't mince words, right? Jesus doesn't say, well, it's kind of like doing it to me. He actually says, no, when you do it or do not do it, it's like you have done it or not done it. It is not like it is like you've done it or not done it unto me. Jesus identifies with the poor and the vulnerable and the left behind and the left out. And we move to those on the margins because we're convinced that's where Jesus lives. That's where he lives. One of the the quiet, uh, out of the spotlight ministries of this congregation is our foot care ministry. Every Wednesday for the past 16 years, volunteers come on campus to wash the feet of folks living on the street. We currently have five individuals serving, and and this this subtle, humble act of love is, I think, for many of us, I'll put myself in this category, not something that we necessarily connect to self-fulfillment, right? After all, feet are feet, right? (laughs) Washing someone's feet doesn't necessarily poke or prod in me feelings of of self-gratification. You know, following the dawn of the Reformation, Protestants used a a formula to determine what would be deemed as a true sacrament uh, in juxtaposition as as to how the Roman church talked about sacraments, how they they understood what sacraments are and and how uh, they function in the life of the church. And and so the Protestants, uh, at the dawn of the Reformation, they used this criterion. First, if it was a true sacrament, they said, if it was a true sacrament, Jesus would have had to command us to do it. Jesus said in the scripture, you need to do this. The second thing is that that Jesus himself did it or had it done unto him. And the third piece of the criterion was, was whether or not the early church, those first Christians, practiced it in a routine way, that it was common in their faith and their life together. Now, baptism and the Lord's Supper easily satisfy this threshold, right? Easily. And interestingly enough, foot washing almost does too. Almost. Because Jesus actually commanded us to do it. Right? Monday, Thursday, on the night that he he celebrated his final meal with his friends. Monday, from the Latin word mandatum, which means mandate, he said, do this, serve one another. And then what did he do? He did it himself. He got down on his hands and knees and he washed the disciples' feet. But the reason it didn't become a sacrament for, for the Protestant community is that it wasn't practiced commonly across the churches, as Christianity was coming to life. Otherwise, we may be having a foot-washing service instead of communion this morning, right? And I know many of us would not want that because feet are still feet. But here's the deal. Trying to connect the dots. Every time one of those volunteers gets down on their hands and knees to wash their friend's feet, 
They touch the feet of Jesus. That's what this parable says. Every time. They touch the feet of Christ himself. And that's why I think they do it. That's why they serve. There's no glamour. There's no recognition. There are no accolades. There's no requirements satisfied. No rewards. And while I'm sure they have some sense of satisfaction and joy in this act, I have a hunch it is only because of this reality that every Wednesday when these volunteers show up, they see Christ himself. They meet him face to face. And that's what gets them in the room. That's their incentive. Friends, the the friend of God and the follower of Jesus rise above self-centered interest. And we ask a different question than what the world asks. We don't ask the question, what's in it for me? Instead, we ask the question, where can I encounter Christ and how may I serve him faithfully? That's what we ask. Where is it that I, can, that I can find him? And Jesus is clear. He tells us where you can find him. Disguised as the hungry and the naked, and the sick and the thirsty and the stranger and the imprisoned. But we know because we know the scriptures that this list extends beyond these. He also says that he can be found in the child in the widow or in the orphan, in the refugee, in the bereaved, in the homebound, and in your neighbor and in your enemy. Many of us this week saw him in an image that made its rounds on social media and throughout the news cycle of a little boy caught in the middle of airstrikes in Syria. The Christian looks at that little boy and sees the eyes of Christ. That's the radical nature of the gospel. Today, following worship, as I said earlier, I want you to join me in Fifield Hall, where you'll meet some of our leaders who are facilitating ministries that encounter Jesus in the other, encounter him in the disguises that he wears. Uh, You may have something to get to, but take 10 minutes, take five minutes to walk over there and to see where our congregation has committed and is continually committed to meeting Christ in the other. And find out ways, perhaps, where your call meets these opportunities to meet Christ face to face. Church, may we be motivated to get involved and incentivized by an encounter with him. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, may it be so. And all of God's people say, amen.